0: This is a dream of St. John Bosco, which was a spectacular symbolic revelation of the future of the Salesian missions in South America. A future of epic grandeur, foreseen by those who knew Don Bosco's work and realized that he was a force not merely human. It's an extensive vision, which revealed parts of South America that hadn't even been charted yet and were later proved to be accurate. So join us for our multi-part series about Don Bosco's prophecies concerning the future of his Salesians in South America. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Subscribe for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Don Bosco told this dream on September 4th at the morning session of the General Chapter. Father Lemoyne immediately put it into writing which Don Bosco critically read from beginning to end, making some additions and modifications. Don Bosco recounted his dream in the following words. On the night before the feast of St. Rose of Lima, August 30th, I had a dream. I was aware that I was sleeping, and at the same time I seemed to be running very, very much, so much so that I was exhausted with running, talking, writing, and wearing myself out and carrying out the rest of my other regular responsibilities. While I was deliberating whether this was a dream or reality, I seemed to enter a recreation hall where I found many people standing about and discussing various topics. A lengthy conversation centered on the hordes of savages in Australia, the Indies, China, Africa, and more especially America who in countless numbers are presently entombed in the darkness of death. Europe, said one of the speakers with much conviction. Christian Europe, the great mistress of civilization and Catholicism, seems to have lost all interest in the foreign missions. Few are those who have enough enthusiasm to brave long journeys and unknown lands to save the souls of millions of people redeemed by the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Another said... How many idolaters in America alone live miserably outside the church, far from the knowledge of the gospel? People keep thinking that the American Cordillera is like a wall blocking off that huge section of the world. It's not so. That interminable chain of lofty mountains contains many plains 600 and more miles in length alone. In them are forests as yet unexplored, plants and animals, and also ores rarely found elsewhere. Coal, oil, lead, copper, iron, silver, and gold lie hidden in those mountains where they were secreted by the all-powerful hand of the Creator for the good of humanity. Oh, Andes, Andes, how steeped in wealth is your eastern flank. At that moment, I felt an urgent desire to ask for an explanation of many things and to find out who those persons gathered there were and where I was. But I said to myself, before speaking, you must find out what kind of people these are. In all curiosity, I gazed about at them. Practically all of these people were total strangers to me. In the meantime, as though they were seeing me for the first time, they invited me to step forward and welcomed me kindly. I asked them, please tell me where we are. Are we in Turin, London, Madrid or Paris? Where are we? Who are you? With whom do I have the pleasure of speaking? But they all gave me vague answers while they kept talking about the missions. During this time, I was approached by a young man of about 16, fascinating for his superhuman beauty and a glow with a brilliance more intense than that of the sun. His garment was woven with heavenly richness on his head he wore a cap shaped like a crown, studded with the most sparkling precious stones. Fixing his kindly gaze upon me, he showed keen interest in me. His smile reflected a love that had its own irresistible attraction. He called me by name, then took my hand and began speaking to me about the Salesian congregation. I was thrilled by the sound of his voice. At one point I interrupted him and asked, With whom do I have the honor of speaking? Do me the kindness of telling me your name. The young man replied, don't be worried. Speak with utter trust. You're with a friend. But what is your name? I asked him. I would tell you my name if it were necessary, he replied. But I don't have to, because you should know me. Saying this, he smiled. I took a better look at that countenance flooded with light. How handsome a face. And then I recognized the son of Count Florito, Cole of Tolon, a distinguished benefactor of our house, and especially of our American missions. This young man had died a short time before. Oh, it's you, I exclaimed, Louis! And who are all these others? They're friends of your Salesians, and as your friend, I would like, in God's name, to give you a bit of work. But before we continue with the rest of the dream, I'd just like to say that if you'd like to enroll in our Saturday Mass Intentions for the promoters of St. John Bosco, just click on the link in the description below. Or you can wait till the end of the video and click on the logo that should appear on the screen. But what do you mean? What's this work? Sit at that table, he ordered, and pull that rope. In the middle of that vast hall stood a table on which lay a coil of rope. It resembled a tape measure marked with lines and numbers. Later, I also came to realize that the hall itself was situated in South America, straddling the equator, and that the numbers marked on that rope corresponded to the degrees of latitude. I therefore took the end of the rope, looked at it, and saw that the tip was marked zero. I smiled. That angelic lad remarked, this is no time to smile. Look carefully at what's written on the rope. It says zero. Pull it a bit, he ordered. I pulled it a little, and up came the number one. Pull more and wrap the rope into a big coil. I did so, and out came the numbers two, three, four, all the way up to 20. Is that enough, I asked. No, pull more, pull more. Pull until you find a knot, the lad answered. I pulled up to the number 47, where I came across a big knot. From this knot, the rope continued, but it was split into smaller strands that fanned out to the east and west and south. Is that enough? I asked. What's the number? The youth answered. It's 47. What's 47 plus 3? He queried. 50, I responded. Now add five more. Fifty five, I responded. Take note, he said. Fifty five. He then told me, pull some more. Well, now I've reached the end, I replied. Now then, reverse the process and pull the rope from the other end. I did so until I reached the number ten. Pull more, the lad told me. There's nothing left. What? Nothing, he said. Take a closer look. What do you see? I see water, I replied. Indeed, at that moment, I felt something very strange happening to me which I can't explain. I was present in that hall. I was pulling that rope, and at the same time, I saw unfolding before my eyes the vision of an immense country over which I was hovering like a bird in flight, and the more the cord was pulled, the farther out did the view stretch. From zero to 55, I saw a vast mainland, the end of which broke up into a hundred islands, one of them very much larger than the others. It seemed that the strands which came from the big knot of the rope stretched out to these islands so that every strand was anchored to one. Some of these islands were inhabited by fairly large numbers of natives. Others were barren, empty, rocky, uninhabited, Others were all blanketed in snow and ice. Toward the west were numerous groups of islands inhabited by many savages. It would appear that the knot situated at the number or degree of 47 symbolized the point of departure, the Salesian center, the principal mission from which the missionaries branched out to the Falkland Islands, Tierra del Fuego, and the other islands of those American countries. That same mainland stretched out from the opposite end of the rope, that is from zero to 10, until it reached the body of water which was as far as I could see. I thought that it was the Caribbean Sea which I was then gazing upon in a way so wondrous that I can't describe the way I saw it. As soon as I said, I see water, the young man replied, now add 55 and 10. What's the sum? 65, I answered. Now join all together, and you'll make just one single rope. And now, I asked him, from this side, what do you see? He asked me in return, and he pointed to a spot on the panorama. Well, to the west, I see very lofty mountains, and to the east, there's the sea. Please note that I was then seeing a summary, in miniature, as it were, of what I later saw in its real grandeur and extent, as I shall narrate. The marks numbered on the rope, each corresponding precisely to the degree of latitude, were those which allowed me to keep in memory for several years the successive localities I visited as I traveled in the second part of this same dream. My young friend continued, very well, these mountains form a ridge or boundary. From here to there is the harvest assigned to the Salesians. Thousands and millions of people are awaiting your help waiting for the faith. Those mountains were the South American Andes, and that ocean was the Atlantic. How will we ever manage, I asked? How will we succeed in bringing all these people into the flock of Christ? If you'd like to hear the rest of the dream concerning the future of the Salesians, just subscribe and come back Monday. And don't forget, this is a link to enroll in our Saturday Mass Intentions for the promoters of St. John Bosco. Thank you all so much for watching. God bless you, and our lady keep you. I've Gotta take this guest star back inside. Don't worry, she didn't replace Griffin. It was just my parents' dog. St. John Bosco's prophecy about the future of his Salesians in South America, part two. If you haven't seen part one yet, just click on the link at the top of the screen. The miracles and prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Subscribe for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. How will we manage, I asked. How will we succeed in bringing all these people to the flock of Jesus Christ? How will you manage, my guide responded. Just watch. And in came Father Lago, who was carrying a basket of small green figs. Take some, Don Bosco, he said. What are you bringing me, I replied, looking at the contents of the basket. I was told to bring them to you but these figs aren't ready to eat. They're not ripe. Then my young friend took the basket, which was very broad but shallow, and gave it to me, saying, here's my gift to you. And what am I to do with these figs? These figs are unripe, he said, but they belong to the great fig tree of life. You must find a way to make them ripen. How? If they were a little bigger, they could mature under straw, as other fruits do. But they're so small, so green. It's impossible. Well then, he said, know that to make them ripen, you have to find some way of reattaching these figs to the tree. Impossible, how can that be done? Well, just watch, he responded. And he took a fig, dipped it into a basin of blood, then immediately dipped it into another basin full of water and said, with sweat and blood, the savages will turn back and be reattached to the plant thus becoming pleasing to the master of life. But to accomplish this will take time, I thought to myself. Then I said aloud, I don't know what else I can say. That dear youth reading my mind continued, this success will take place before the second generation comes to an end. Which will be the second generation, I asked. Don't count the present generation, he said. There shall be another and then another. I spoke in utter confusion, baffled, spluttering, as I heard the magnificent destiny awaiting our congregation. And I asked, but how many years does each of these generations include? 60, he said. And then, do you wish to see what will happen then? Come, he said. Without my knowing how, I found myself in a railroad station. A huge crowd was gathered there, and we boarded a train. I asked where we were. The young man replied, take notice and watch carefully. We're traveling along the Andes. You have your road also open to the east all the way to the sea. It's another of the Lord's gifts. And when shall we go to Boston where they're waiting for us, I asked. Everything at its own time, he said, taking out a map in which the diocese of Cartagena stood out prominently. That was the point of our departure. As we went along, my friend kept talking much, but because of the train's noise, I couldn't fully hear him. Nevertheless, I learned many very wonderful and new things about astronomy, navigation, meteorology, minerals, fauna, and flora, the topography of those areas, which he explained to me with marvelous precision. Meanwhile, he seasoned his speech with a courteous and at the same time gentle familiarity, which showed his love for me. From the very start he took my hand and kept me always very affectionately in his tight clasp to the very end of the dream. I placed my other hand lightly in his, but his hand seemed to disappear under mine as though it had evaporated, and my left hand merely held my right. The young man smiled at my useless efforts. In the meantime, I was looking out the carriage window, and I saw whiz before me various astonishing regions, Forests, mountains, plains, very long majestic rivers which I couldn't believe to be so wide at points so far from their mouths. For more than a thousand miles we skirted the edge of a virgin forest which hasn't been explored even today. My gaze took on a marvelous power of vision. There were no obstacles that could block its view. I don't know how to explain what strange phenomenon took place in my eyes. I felt like someone standing on a hilltop, who sees, stretching out before him, a vast panorama. If he holds even a tiny strip of paper close to his eyes, he can see little or nothing. But if he drops it, or moves it up or down, his gaze can reach out to the farthest horizon. This is what happened to me because of the extraordinary insight that was given to me. But the difference was this. Every now and then, as I set my gaze upon one spot, and that one spot whizzed past me, it was as if a series of curtains were being raised, and I saw stretching out before me interminable distances. Not only did I see the Andes when I was a long distance from them, but that chain of mountains even stood out in those immeasurable plains and was clearly visible to me in every tiny detail. The mountain ranges of Colombia, Venezuela, the three Guyanas, Brazil, and Bolivia even to their farthest boundaries. I was then able to verify the correctness of the words I had heard at the beginning of my dream and the grand hall straddling the equator. I could see into the very bowels of the mountains and into the remotest hidden recesses of the plains. Before my eyes lay the incomparable riches of those countries, which will one day be discovered. I saw countless mines of precious metals, inexhaustible caverns of coal, oil deposits so abundant as have never yet been discovered elsewhere. But that wasn't all. Between 15 and 20 degrees latitude lay a very broad and very lengthy body of water that had its origin from the end of a lake. Then a voice kept repeating to me when the mines hidden in the midst of these mountains will eventually be dug out. Here will appear the promised land flowing with milk and honey. Its wealth will defy belief. But that wasn't all either. My greatest surprise was to see how the Andes in several places reverted upon themselves and formed valleys of whose existence present-day geographers haven't even the slightest idea. They think that in those areas the mountainsides are sheer walls. In those valleys and hollows, some of which extended as much as 600 miles, lived, crowded, countless peoples who have not yet come in contact with Europeans, entire nations completely unknown to us. The train kept rushing along, turning here and there, and finally coming to a halt. A fair number of passengers got off at this point to continue their journey through the Andes to the west. At this point, there's a note from the Salesians. Don Bosco indicated Bolivia. The station was probably La Paz, where a tunnel could open the way to the Pacific coast and link Brazil with Lima by means of a junction with another railroad. The train began to move again, heading always forward. We passed along the banks of the Uruguay River. I always thought it was a short river, but instead it's very long. At one point, I saw the Paraná River winding its way to the Uruguay as though it were bringing it the tribute of its waters, but after somewhat paralleling it for a stretch, it pulled away, forming a huge elbow. Both these rivers were enormous. The train kept forging its way, turning here and there, and after a long time, it made a second stop. Another large number of people got off there and made their way westward through the Andes. Here, Don Bosco indicated the province of Mendoza in Argentina, and the tunnel led to Santiago, capital of the Republic of Chile. Finally, we reached the Strait of Magellan. I looked all about me. We alighted. Before me lay Punta Arenas. For several miles, the ground was cluttered with mounds of coal, boards, railroad ties, huge piles of minerals, and the fields were partially covered with flocks, partially tilled. My friend pointed all these things out to me. Then I asked, and now what are you trying to tell me with all this? He answered, what is now merely a project will one day be a reality. In time to come, these savages will be so domesticated that they shall willingly come for instruction, religion, civilization, and trading. What elsewhere excites wonder among people will here assume such stupendous proportions as to arouse more astonishment than does anything else now. I've seen enough, I replied. Now take me to see my Salesians in Patagonia. And if you'd like to hear about what he saw there in his vision, please come back Wednesday for our third part in this series. In the meantime, if you'd like to hear more dreams of St. John Bosco, just click on this playlist above me here. Thank you all so much for watching. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. Let's go. Don Bosco's prophecy about the future of his Salesians in South America, part three. If you haven't seen the other parts of the dream yet, just click on the playlist at the top of the screen. This is the episode where we reveal how Don Bosco saw things in South America that hadn't even been charted yet on the maps. The miracles and prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima, I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Subscribe for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. I've seen enough, I replied. Now take me to see my Salesians in Patagonia. We turned back to the station and reboarded the train to return. After traveling a very long distance, the train stopped before a town of considerable size, possibly on the 47th parallel, where at the very beginning of the dream, I had seen the big knot in the rope. There was no one at the station to meet me. I got off the train and immediately found the Salesians. I saw many houses with many people in them, more churches, schools, various hospices for children and youths, artisans and fanners, and a school for girls which taught a variety of domestic arts. Our missionaries were caring for both the young and the adults. I walked into their midst. There were many, but I didn't recognize them and none of my old sons were among them. All were looking at me in bewilderment, as though I were new to them. And I asked them, don't you know me? Don't you know Don Bosco? Oh, Don Bosco, they replied. We know him by reputation, but we have only seen him in photographs. Do we know him personally? Certainly not. And Father Fanano, I asked, Father Costamagna, where are they? We do not know them, they responded. They're the ones who came here long ago in the past, the first Salesians to come to these lands from Europe. But so many years have gone by since they died. I gasped in wonder at their reply. But is this a dream, or reality? I clapped my hands, I felt my arms, I shook myself, and I really heard the sound of my clapping, and I could feel my body, and I kept telling myself I wasn't asleep. This visit was but the matter of an instant. Having witnessed the marvelous progress of the Catholic Church, of our congregation, I thanked Divine Providence for graciously using me as an instrument of his divine glory and the salvation of so many souls. Young Cole, my guide, meanwhile signaled me that it was time to go back. So we said goodbye to my Salesians and returned to the station, where the train was ready to depart. We boarded, the whistle blew, and away we headed northward. The region of Patagonia closest to the Strait of Magellan, between the Andes and the Atlantic, isn't as wide as geographers claim it to be. The train rushed along at breakneck speed, and I thought we were crossing the provinces of the Republic of Argentina, which already had been civilized. Our journey took us through a virgin forest, interminably broad and interminably long. At a certain point, the train stopped and our gaze fell upon a very sorry sight indeed. A huge crowd of savages was gathered in a forest clearing. Their faces were deformed and dirty, their bodies covered with what seemed to be animal skins sewed together. They surrounded a man who was bound and seated on a rock. He was very obese, having been deliberately fattened by the natives. The poor fellow had been taken prisoner, and from the sharpness of his features seemed to belong to a different race. Hordes of savages were interrogating him, and he was telling them of the adventures he had encountered in his travels. Suddenly one of the natives arose, brandishing a shaft of iron which was well sharpened, though not a sword, and he threw himself upon the prisoner and with one blow cut off his head. All the train passengers crowded at the doors and windows, gazing upon the scene in horror. Cole himself was looking in silence. The victim uttered a shrill scream as he was struck. Those cannibals then threw themselves upon the body, bathed in a lake of blood, and slicing it up, threw chunks of warm and still quivering flesh upon nearby fires, let them roast a while, and then ate them half cooked. At that poor man's scream, the train began to move and gradually resumed its breakneck speed. For hours at a stretch, it skirted the shores of a huge river. At times it was on the right bank, at times on the left. I couldn't tell through the window what bridges we used to make those frequent crossings. Meanwhile along the banks here and there, we spotted numerous tribes of savages. Each time we saw them, young Cole kept saying, this is the Silesian harvest. This is the Silesian harvest. We then entered a region packed with wild animals and poisonous snakes of bizarre and horrifying shapes. They swarmed over the mountain sides and hill slopes. They blanketed the hilltops, the lake shores, the river banks, the plains, the cliffs. Some looked like dogs with wings and were extraordinarily bloated, which symbolized gluttony, impurity, and pride. Others were gigantic toads eating frogs. We could see certain lairs full of animals different in shape from ours. All three species of animals were mixed together and snarled dully as though about to devour each other. We could also see tigers, hyenas, lions, but they weren't the same as those of Asia and Africa. My companion then spoke to me, pointing out those animals to me, and exclaimed, The Silesians will tame them. The train was now approaching its starting point, and we weren't far from it. Young Kale then drew out a map of astounding beauty and told me, Would you like to see the journey you've just made, the regions we've traversed? Yes, of course, I answered. He then explained the map, on which all South America was detailed with marvelous exactness. More than that, it showed all that had been, what then was, and what would be in those regions. But without confusion, rather with such a clarity that one could instantly see all at one glance. I immediately understood everything, but due to the onrush of so many things, that clarity lasted but one hour, and now my mind is just one big jumble. While I was looking at that map and waiting for the youth to offer some explanation, I was overwhelmed by the astounding things I was looking at. I thought I heard our ring the morning angelus, but on awakening, I realized I was hearing the bell strokes of the parish church of San Benin. The dream had taken the entire night." Don Bosco concluded his account with these words, "'The Salesians will draw the people of South America to Jesus Christ by the sweetness of St. Francis de Sales. It will be a most difficult task to teach the savages a moral way of life but their children will easily yield to the words of the missionaries and live in towns with them. Civilization will supplant savagery, and thus many Indians will enter the flock of Jesus Christ. A few days later, almost in confirmation of these extraordinary prophecies, a letter arrived from Bishop Bernard August Tiel of San Jose, Costa Rica, a Vincentian, who wrote to ask Don Bosco for a few Salesian missionaries. San Jose is located precisely on the tenth parallel mentioned in the dream. Don Bosco himself wrote to Count Cole on February 11, 1884, The journey I made with our dear Louis keeps unraveling itself every day. At this time, it seems to have turned into the very heart of our work. Much is said and written and publicized to explain our plans and make them a reality. Relevant to the dream of Patagonia, Father Lemoyne gathered these words directly from Don Bosco. He said, When people come to know the wealth which makes Patagonia precious, this land will have an extraordinary commercial development. In the bowels of the mountains lie hidden precious minerals. In the Andes, between the 10th and 20th parallels, are to be found deposits of lead, gold, and other minerals more precious than gold. At this point in the biographical memoirs of St. John Bosco, where I found this story, the Salesians wrote that our readers may have some notion of the significance of this dream. We will highlight some outstanding features. Keep in mind this was written in the 19th century. Don Bosco gave us a mass of positive data which he couldn't have learned from either travelers or explorers, since no explorations of any kind had been made in those southernmost latitudes, either for tourism or for scientific study. To this data are to be added prophetic statements which point to a future more or less remote. Let us consider the description of the Andes given by Don Bosco. It was the common opinion that they formed a dividing wall running north and south for more than 30 degrees of latitude. Instead, explorations and studies over several decades have shown that, as Don Bosco correctly observed, the range is broken up by innumerable depressions in the form of inlets, valleys, and lake basins. This is completely opposite to the old idea of one solid homogeneous mass. In Don Bosco's description, which shows a vertical structure of the Andes and its different modifications, we find an impressive precision. Not even the most authoritative geographer could, at that time, have come out with such a definitive and precise affirmation as did Don Bosco. To be convinced that in those days people had no knowledge of the existence of so many coves and valleys, all one needs to do is look at the maps of those years. Our saint also asserts that extraordinarily rich deposits of coal, petroleum, lead, and even precious metals lie hidden in the bowels of those mountains, placed there for the good of humanity by the all-powerful hand of the Creator. And now, year after year, new mineral deposits are being discovered all through the Andes and along the coast of the Atlantic. Lastly, Don Bosco described fantasy railroads where only deserts and wastelands existed. Today, the rail networks of the republics of Central and South America have undergone a remarkable development and, in many places, crisscross the Andes. Tracks have been laid along the ridge of the Andes, and the day isn't far off when, in fulfillment of Don Bosco's prophecy, these railroads will cross all of Patagonia and tie the northern shores of South America to the Strait of Magellan. Thank you all so much for watching, and if you'd like to hear about St. John Bosco's dream titled The Monster on the Playground, just click on the link above me here. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. Before we get into the diabolical manifestations in St. John Bosco's life, I think it's important to define why it was happening to him in particular. This man had an incredible vocation, and at that time, he was converting hundreds of Protestants from the Waldensian heresy. So please don't be overly afraid of these stories, because these manifestations don't happen to everyone. And also, please don't fill up the comment section with things like, I saw the devil myself, because that's not the point of this video. The point is to admire St. John Bosco for his fortitude in withstanding these demonic onslaughts. So please pray the St. Michael prayer and continue with this video. The miracles and prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Subscribe for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. In the early months of 1862, many Protestant families were turning to the true church. Don Bosco frequently met with a Waldensian minister named Wolf, really a Catholic at heart, though not yet formally, who now and then called on Don Bosco with some of his co-religionists. By listening to Don Bosco, they too became convinced of their error and willingly embraced the Catholic faith. One time, the saint was teaching his Salesians about a particular verse from the Gospel of John. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. He commented that Protestants misinterpret these words as an argument against exterior worship and he spoke about a tough debate he had five or six days before with Protestants in a private home. To begin with, do you know what in spirit means? I asked. It means that God should be adored selflessly and fervently in one's own heart, not superstitiously as Catholics do, they replied, considering our exterior worship a mere masquerade. Were this really so, I rejoined, I'd agree with you, but it is decidedly not. Anyway, let's continue. What does in truth mean? It means that God should be adored in a real, not in an empty way. Did you say real? I asked. Yes. Very well. Real means something concrete. How can a concrete thing be only in one's heart? Rather put out, my opponents had to admit that I was right. Well then, I went on. In spirit and in truth must also be taken to say that exterior means may and should be used in worshiping God. Furthermore, they also reveal serious doctrinal and liturgical differences between Hebrew and Christian ritual and ceremony. In spirit and in truth means that all Old Testament rites and sacrifices, mere figures of those of the New Testament, would one day be superseded by a real sacrifice truly pleasing to God. Read the first chapter of St. Luke's Gospel and you'll see a magnificent sacrifice being celebrated with all the splendor of exterior rite and ceremony with altar, thurible, and incense. All this foreshadowed the solemn mass, the real, true sacrifice. The first chapter of the Acts of the Apostles tells us that they met with the disciples and the cynical to pray. The next chapter shows them offering the Eucharistic sacrifice and partaking of communion at that gathering. The authentic history of Christianity's first three centuries proves that Christians, following the Apostles' tradition, celebrated Holy Mass with altars, rites, psalm singing, flowers, incense, and candles. Read the fourth and subsequent chapters of the Apocalypse. They describe a sacred rite so minutely that you'll think you're watching one of our sacrifices offered in our Catholic churches. You'll see the altar, the censer, the incense, the candlesticks, the lamps, the scented golden vessels, the elders' golden crown of miters, the ritual boughs, the harps, the canticles, and the procession of white-clad virgins, in a word, everything the church uses for ritual splendor. When I finished speaking, one of the Protestants looked for a copy of the New Testament. All they had was the adulterated translation into Italian by Giovanni Diodati. I let them use it anyway, because I was certain that it would contain enough evidence to convince them. After they had checked the passages I had quoted, I pointed out and explained a few others then and there. They concluded, We really had never paid much attention to these passages. So I went on, now tell me, how do your churches resemble Jerusalem's holy temple? Do you have altars, censers, incense, candles? Does your manner of honoring God resemble what the apostles did and what the angels themselves do in heaven? Don't you think we're reasonable in imitating the saints and the angels as we adore God? Well, of course, they said. Truthfully, we must admit that we have nothing that you mentioned. In conclusion, one of them, an evangelical minister, remarked, This is something we shall have to think about. This debate and the Waldensian minister's misgivings dealt a serious blow to their position. As a result, there were many Protestants that turned to the Catholic Church in those days. Infuriated at losing these souls, Satan vented his rage on Don Bosco by depriving him of his sleep, as Bishop John Caliero has well reported. But before I get into the diabolical vexations that plague Don Bosco, I'd just like to say that if you'd like to enroll in our Saturday Mass Intentions for the promoters of St. John Bosco, just click on the link in the description below. Or you can wait till the end of the video and click on the logo that should appear on the screen. You don't have to become a monthly donor to have a mass prayed for you, but if you do, you could receive an excellent book written by St. John Bosco himself, like this one. Sacred History. It's basically a review of the New Testament for children, but I myself am an adult and I found it very useful. So help me keep these videos free of filthy YouTube ads and spread the message of St. John Bosco far and wide. And now, the report of Bishop John Caliero. This truly diabolical vexation began in the first days of February, 1862. We became aware that Don Bosco was daily getting more and more worn out. He was pale, gaunt, dispirited, more tired than usual, and obviously in need of rest. We asked him what was wrong. I just need to sleep, he replied. I haven't slept for the last four or five nights. Well, we answered, don't work at night anymore. Go to bed and sleep. I wish I could, but he won't let me. Who? For some nights now, he replied, the devil has been having fun at my expense. No sooner do I fall asleep than a booming voice shouts into my ear and drives me out of my mind. Then a blast of wind rattles me as if in a storm and plays havoc with my papers and books. Late one night, for instance, I had been editing a forthcoming issue of Lecciore Catalice, which was written against the Waldensian Protestants, that was entitled The Power of Darkness and had left it on my desk. In the morning, I found it on the floor. Other mornings, I had to search for it. Strange. I suppose the devil likes to visit people who write about him. He smiled and then went on, "'The last three nights, I've heard someone chopping wood near my fireplace. "'Last night, though there was no fire lit, flames burst out of it spontaneously. "'I thought they would burn the house down. "'Another time, I had just put out the light and fallen asleep "'when I felt the blankets being slowly tugged to the foot of the bed, "'leaving me half uncovered. "'The footboard is high enough to keep the blankets from slipping off.' I didn't think much of it, and just kept pulling the blanket up again until I felt something was wrong, lit the lamp, and made a thorough search of the room. Finding nothing special, I went back to bed, leaving the light on, and put myself in God's hands. Nothing untoward occurred as long as the lamp was lit, but no sooner would I put it out than the blankets would be slowly pulled down. Filled with inexplicable loathing, I had to keep the light on, since the phenomenon would stop abruptly, only to start again if I put the light out. Once, I even saw the flame blown out with a loud puff. Now and then, my pillow would begin rocking just as I was about to drop off to sleep. If I made the sign of the cross, the disturbance ceased. After praying a few moments, I would again settle myself down for a brief sleep, but as soon as I would begin to doze off, The bed would be shaken by some invisible power, and the door of my room would creak, as though under pressure from a fierce wind. I would keep hearing strange, dreadful noises about my room, like vehicles in motion, and blood-curdling screams would startle me. One night, the door of my room even burst open, and I saw a horrible monster, jaws wide open, advancing to devour me. The sign of the cross made it disappear. Caliero continues, "'No one sleeping in adjacent rooms had heard any noise. "'One night, Father Angelo Savio decided to stand watch "'in Don Bosco's antechamber to verify the happenings. "'Toward midnight, all of a sudden, "'a chilling clamor so loud frightened him "'that he fled in terror to his own room. "'Yet he was one of the bravest at the oratory, "'as he had proved on several occasions. "'Don Bosco would have liked someone to stay up with him,' but no one dared. Once, the clerics Bonetti and Rufino decided to spend the night in the adjoining library, but within moments, they became frightened and gave up. Don Bosco had to resign himself to stay alone and wonder when the vexing harassment would end. If you'd like to hear more of how St. John Bosco thwarted these satanic attempts, please come back Monday for our second part of this story. Thank you all so much for watching, and just remember if you'd like to enroll in our Saturday Mass Intentions for the promoters of St. John Bosco, just click on the link above me here. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. St. Michael, pray for us. Before watching the second episode on the nightly diabolical manifestations in St. John Bosco's life, keep in mind that these things don't happen to everyone. He was a man who had a grand vocation. So for you, i just say pray the St. Michael prayer and continue watching. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Subscribe for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. February 12th, 1862. Don Bosco narrated the following incident. The night of the sixth or seventh of this month, I had just gone to bed and was about to doze off, "'when I was seized by the shoulders and vigorously shaken. "'I was terrified. "'Who are you?' I cried. "'I lit the lamp, and I looked under the bed, "'and in every corner of the room. "'Nothing. "'I tried the door. It was closed. "'I checked the door leading into the library. "'It was closed, too. "'So I went back to bed. "'I had hardly dozed off when another jolt thoroughly frightened me. "'I wanted to ring for Rossi or Reano, but then I decided I had better not disturb them. Lying on my back, I tried to sleep. Abruptly, I felt a crushing weight on my stomach and couldn't breathe. I had to cry out, What is that? I struck out with my fist and met only air. I turned over on my stomach, but even that didn't help. All in all, it was a horrible night. The next evening, I blessed the bed before going to sleep, but it did no good. I went through the same ordeal for the following four or five nights. I wonder what will happen tonight. I'm sorry if you can hear it, but it is pouring rain outside. It was Wednesday evening, February 12th, eve of the monthly exercise for a happy death. The following day would be the first time we could gain a plenary indulgence granted by Pius IX on January 13th of this same year. February 15th, 1862. After supper this evening, Chevalier Oriella, together with a few priests and clerics, gathered around Don Bosco and asked him if he had been able to sleep the night before. When I went into my room, he replied, "'I found the bedside table doing a tap dance.' "'Isn't this something?' I thought. I asked the table, "'What do you want?' The only answer was more tap dancing. I started pacing the room, and the table stood still. I went near it, and the tap dancing resumed.' If someone had told me this, I would certainly not believe it. Does it all sound like old folk tales of witches and magic? It would be awful if I told the boys these things. They'd be scared to death. We begged him for more details, but he was at first reluctant. When one has something to say, he remarked, he should consider whether it will rebound to God's glory and the welfare of souls. My story would not meet this standard. At this point, I, Bonetti, interjected, "'Who knows? It might help our souls.' As the others sided with me, Don Bosco went on, "'While I was in bed, I saw some horrible sights. Successively, I saw the shapes of a bear, a tiger, a wolf, and a monster serpent. These phantoms kept hovering about the room, leapt up to my bed, and squatted there. For a little while, I said nothing.' Then I exclaimed, "'Oh, good Jesus!' In a flash, these phantoms vanished. And so the night went by. February 16, 1862. This evening, several of us remarked that Don Bosco hadn't taken milk with his coffee at breakfast for the last five or six days. We figured that he must be fasting to win God's favor and be rid of his nightly torment. When asked if he had spent a peaceful night, Don Bosco answered, Yes, a little. Monday, February 17th. This morning, a few of us sat around Don Bosco as he was having a cup of coffee. We asked him if he had again been disturbed during the night. Yes, he answered. The bedside table danced about and knocked the lampshade to the floor. As soon as I lay down, I felt something cold lightly brush my forehead. I pulled down my nightcap, but the mysterious brush, whatever it was kept tickling my nostrils and lips and kept me awake all night. This happened on other occasions, too, and I thought it was most likely an odorous tale awakening me with a start. This morning, I arose dead tired. The following night, Don Bosco was again tormented till dawn. No sooner would he doze off than the pillow would begin rocking and rising. February 22nd. Chevalier Oriella asked Don Bosco if he were not afraid of such torments of the evil spirit. He replied, Horrified, yes, but not afraid. Just as I have no fear of angels because, as I hope, I am a friend of God. Likewise, I don't fear demons because I am an enemy of God's enemies. God will protect me. Satan can do whatever he pleases now because this is his moment but mine will come too. Sunday, February 23rd. Don Bosco was extremely tired and had to go to bed, a most unusual thing for him. Some 15 minutes later, Chevalier Oyella told him of a sick call. Don Bosco got up instantly, walked over to a nearby address, and confessed and comforted the patient. He later went back to bed, that evening, Father Micheli Rua dropped in to inquire how he felt. "'I am very, very tired,' he replied. "'I can't rest. I am continually awakened. Last night I kept dozing on and off. No sooner would I close my eyes than I would hear hammer blows striking under my pillow. If I sat up, the noise stopped. If I lay down, it began anew. Such torture. I longed for daybreak.' I laugh when I talk about these things, but you can be sure that I don't feel like laughing at all. I'm very much disturbed. Last year was a hectic year for the oratory, but this year beats it by far. Then exercise this evil spirit. Well, the day after tomorrow, I'll go to Ivrea and spend a few days with Bishop Moreno. If, on my return, this demon starts tormenting me again, I know what to do. I'll try a trick that I've been saving up. And what's that? I shall question him in the name of Jesus Christ and force him to tell me if he is sent by God to put me to a test or from Lucifer to hinder the good work we have begun. He'll have no choice but to answer me. But what if he refuses to answer? I shall tell him, I adjure you in the name of Jesus Christ to tell me what you are and what you want. But don't you know yet why he torments you? I have an idea that the devil doesn't want our Catholic school at Porta Nuova to open because it may checkmate the Protestant one. Are you the only one involved in that project? I suggested it, I promoted it, and I initiated the purchase of the land. Then I agreed to provide the teachers and pay their salaries. No, the evil spirit shall not prevail. February 26th. Don Bosco returned to Ivrea, where he had sought refuge with Bishop Moreno a few days before to rid himself of his nightly, diabolical visitations. It was his first peaceful night in a whole month, and he felt greatly refreshed. One evening, after talking with the bishop till one in the morning, he went tranquilly to his room, thinking that the devil had lost track of him. As soon as he put the light out, The pillow began to rock just as at the oratory, and a horrid monster appeared at the foot of his bed, ready to pounce upon him. At this sight he screamed so loudly that he woke everybody up. The servants, the bishop's secretary, the vicar general, and the bishop himself dashed to his room, fearing harm for Don Bosco. They found him exhausted, but calm. Though they anxiously questioned him, he smilingly gave an evasive answer. Oh. It was nothing. Just a nightmare. Please go back to bed. The following day, however, he told the bishop the whole story. March 4th. It has been a few days since Don Bosco's return from Ivrea. His nightly disturbances continue. On the night of March 3rd, he told us, the demon lifted my bed aloft and then let it drop to the floor. I was so shaken from my waist up that I felt my head must be gushing with blood. After tormenting me the whole night by rattling doors and windows, toward morning the demon took the poster on which was written, Every minute is a treasure, and dashed it to the floor so violently that it sounded like a rifle shot. In the morning I found it in the middle of the room. "'We then insistently begged him to do what he had threatened to do "'if the devil would keep tormenting him on his return from Ivrea. "'But if I chase him from me,' he replied, "'he'll go after the boys.' "'Do you mean then,' Pravara asked him, "'that when you were at Ivrea and spent a peaceful night, "'the devil harmed some boys?' "'Yes, he did a lot of harm.' "'Then ask him what he wants,' we insisted. "'Who says I haven't?' he replied." Then tell us, we all shouted together. But he changed the subject, and all we got from him was pray. The boys did pray, and little by little he regained his strength. Nevertheless, on and off, that battle with the spirit of darkness went on until 1864. One evening in 1865, Don Bosco was telling a group of boys about the frightful nights he had experienced in the past few years. I am not afraid of the devil, one boy interrupted. Don't say that, Don Bosco replied with surprising vehemence. You have no idea what power the devil can wield if God would let him. Sure, if he came my way, I'd grab him by the neck and let him have it. Don't be silly. You'd die of fright the moment you saw him. But I'd make the sign of the cross. That would help for a moment, Don Bosco replied. Then how did you get rid of him? I found a way of scaring him for a long time to come. What was that? The sign of the cross? Yes, but not that alone. The sign of the cross was effective, but for the moment. How about holy water? Even that's not enough sometimes. So then, what was your remedy? It was... He stopped and declined to go on further, merely concluding, one thing's certain... I wouldn't wish anyone to experience the frightful things that I went through. We should all pray to God not to allow our enemy to play such tricks on us. I don't know what it was that St. John Bosco did to make the devil go away, but I can suggest the short exorcism of the St. Michael prayer. Thank you all so much for watching, and if you'd like to hear about how St. John Bosco saw things in South America that weren't even charted yet on the maps of the time, just click on the video above me here. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. St. Michael, pray for us. Our Lady terror of demons, pray for us. This is a supernatural vision that God sent to Don Bosco in the form of a dream in order to warn his Salesians and oratory boys against grumbling and disobedience. The miracles and prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Subscribe for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Don Bosco dreamed he was in a very large hall in Borgo San Salvario turn, where a number of men and women religious of different orders and congregations were all gathered together. As Don Bosco entered, all faced him, as though he had been expected. Among them, he spotted a strange-looking man with his head swathed in a white turban and his body shrouded in some kind of cloak. When Don Bosco asked the identity of the man with that strange headgear, he was told that it was he himself. Perhaps it was an image of Don Bosco dreaming in his nightcap. He moved into that crowd of religious, who smilingly encircled him in utter silence. He looked about in wonder, but all stared at him and kept smiling, still silent. What are you up to? he finally asked. Are you mocking me? Mocking you, they said. Far from it. We're smiling and laughing because we have surmised why you came here. How could you do that if I don't even know why I came here myself? Believe me, your behavior is quite surprising. You came here, they all answered, because you've just given your clerics a retreat at Lonzo. And so? Now you come to find something to say for a closing talk. Uh, all right then, tell me what I should say. Something that will foster the growth of the congregation of St. Francis de Sales. I shall be very much obliged. We have only one suggestion. Tell your sons to beware of the phylloxera. For those who don't know, A phylloxera is an almost microscopic pale yellow sap-sucking insect related to aphids that feeds on the roots and leaves of grapevines. The phylloxera? What's the phylloxera to do with it? Keep the phylloxera far from your congregation, they said, and it will last a long time, flourish, and do great good for souls. I don't understand. Don't you? Why not? The phylloxera is the scourge which has wrought havoc in many religious orders and kept them from attaining their noble purpose. Your suggestion is useless to me unless you explain its meaning. I don't understand at all. Then all your theological studies weren't worth your trouble," they said. As you wish, replied Don Bosco, I studied what I was supposed to study, but I never came across any mention of phylloxera in my theology books. Ah, but it was there, they said. Break the word down to its moral and spiritual meaning. Well, the etymology of phylloxera has nothing even remotely resembling a spiritual meaning, replied Don Bosco. Since you can't grasp this mystery, here comes someone who can explain it to you, they said. There was a jostling in the crowd, and way was made for a new personage to step forth. Don Bosco scrutinized him carefully, but couldn't remember having seen him before although his friendly manners seemed to indicate that he was an old acquaintance. As soon as he drew nearer, Don Bosco told him, "'You've come just in time to get me out of this embarrassing situation these people have put me in. They claim that the phylloxera is a threat against religious communities, and they want me to make the phylloxera the theme of my closing sermon of the retreat.' "'Don Bosco, you think you're so wise,' said the man, "'and you don't know these things?' Yes, it's true that if you fight the phylloxera with all your might and teach your sons to do the same, your society won't fail to grow. Do you even know what the phylloxera is? Well, I I know it's a blight which attacks plants and kills them by stunting their growth. And what causes this blight? It's due to myriads of parasites which invade a plant. How can neighboring plants be saved from the blight? Asked this strange man. I have no idea. Then listen carefully. The phylloxera first shows up on just one plant, but in a short time all nearby plants become infected, even those at a distance. Now once this disease shows up in a vineyard or orchard or garden, it spreads like wildfire, and the beauty and crops you hoped for are ruined. Do you know how this blight spreads? Not by contact, because there's some distance between plants nor by parasites crawling to the ground and going over to other plants. It has been proven that it is the wind which carries the curse to the branches of healthy plants so that disaster spreads rapidly. Well now, know this. The wind of grumbling bears the phylloxera of disobedience far. Now do you understand? I'm beginning to. The harm caused by the phylloxera carried by this wind is beyond reckoning. In the most flourishing communities, it first undermines mutual charity, then zeal for the salvation of souls. Later it fosters idleness and destroys all other religious virtues. And finally, scandal turns a community into an object of censure by God and man. There is no need for an infected member to go from one community to another. It's enough for this wind to blow from afar. Be convinced that this caused the destruction of certain religious orders. Don Bosco said, well, you're right. I see the truth of your words, but how can one remedy such a situation? Half measures aren't enough, said the man. Radical action is needed. To check Phylloxera, blighted plants used to be treated with sulfur, lime water, and other remedies, all to no avail because phylloxera on a single plant can immediately infect an entire vineyard. From one vineyard, it spreads to others like wildfire, so that one area can soon infect an entire province or an entire realm. Do you want to know the one way to nip this evil in the bud? As soon as phylloxera appears on a plant, carefully cut it down along with the adjacent brush and burn everything. If the entire vineyard is infected, cut down all the vines and thoroughly burn them to save neighboring vineyards, only fire can exterminate the blight. So also, when Phylloxera appears in any community in the form of opposition to the superior's will, arrogant neglect of the rules, or contempt for the responsibilities of community life, don't delay. Raise that house to its foundation, get rid of its members, and don't yield to dangerous tolerance and as you deal with a house, so deal with an individual. At times you may think that a certain individual, if left to himself, will improve and return to the right path, or you may not like to punish someone because you love him, or because he has special skills or knowledge which you feel will bring credit to the congregation. But don't be swayed by such considerations. Rarely will people of this kind change their ways. I don't say that their conversion is impossible, but I maintain that it is rare. So rare, indeed, that this probability does not of itself give a justifiable reason to incline toward a more lenient decision. You may say that some of these persons will turn out worse by living in the world. So be it. They will bear full responsibility for their conduct, but your congregation will not have to suffer from it. What if, asked Don Bosco, being kept in the society, they might be coaxed back to the right path. Your assumption is worthless, the man responded. It's better to dismiss these haughty individuals than to keep them in the hope that they may sow seeds in the Lord's vineyard. Impress this principle upon your memory. Use it decisively when need arises. Treat of it in your conferences to your directors and make it the topic of your closing sermon of the retreat. Yes, yes, I will, said Don Bosco. I thank you for your warning. Now tell me who you are. Don't you know me, he asked. Don't you recall how often you have seen me? While the stranger spoke, all the bystanders smiled. Just then, the morning bell rang for rising, and Don Bosco awoke. He added that this dream had come on three consecutive nights, thus dispelling any suspicion that he had concocted this parable of sorts to give his own thoughts a fanciful dress. His mention of the strange headgear was an opener to humble himself, as he usually did, and to dispel any impression from his listeners' minds that this was a charismatic gift. In most of his dreams, Don Bosco encountered a man who acted as a guide and interpreter. This was this strange man at the end of the dream. Thank you all so much for watching. And if you'd like to hear about how Don Bosco was attacked by the devil after converting some Protestants, just click on the video above me here. And don't forget, if you'd like to enroll in our Saturday Mass intentions for the promoters of St. John Bosco, just click on this other link over here. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. Can you imagine attending a spiritual retreat given by a saint, like Don Bosco? It would be the chance of a lifetime. But consider the fact that there were many oratory boys that didn't take advantage of his presence and wise counsels, much like the three apostles who snored through our Lord's agony in the garden. He would ask the boys to thoroughly examine their consciences during these retreats, and they would lazily ask him to just read their souls instead, because they knew he could do it. God had to warn these hardened sinners through a mystical vision that he sent to Don Bosco, which involved demonic crows. (laughs) The miracles and prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Subscribe for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Don Bosco notified the boys that the spiritual retreat would begin in seven days. He said, to make a good retreat, you must prepare yourselves, and you must start to plan how to spend the retreat right now so that it's not over quickly without much impact. One of you will say, I want to spend the time sleeping. Another boy will say, I want to spend it reading amusing books and eating snacks. A third might say, I want to use the time to brush up on my grammar studies. Finally, a fourth boy will say, I want to bear fruit in holiness and think about my vocation. The fourth boy reasons like a wise man. What can we say about the others? What can we say to them? My dear boys, always consider that this may be the last retreat you make in your life. Think about it. On April 11th, the retreat schedule was published and our dear saint spent many hours in the confessional. Don Caliero tells us, Don Bosco's goodness with youngsters and adults was exceptional, constant, and admirable. Almost all of us confessed our sins to him because of his gentleness and patient charity. More forgiving than severe, he motivated us to trust in the Lord's forgiveness while he instilled a holy fear of God in our hearts. At this time, there was a young boy in the oratory who wanted nothing to do with sacraments or prayers. He was in the oratory by force, not because he wanted to be there. So one day, Don Bosco took him aside and said, Why do you always seem to be standing before an angry dog who is gnashing his teeth and always trying to bite you? I don't see him, the boy said. Well, I do. Tell me, how is your conscience? The young man lowered his head. Don Bosco said, come on, cheer up. We'll make everything all right. The poor fellow became a friend of Don Bosco and is now determined to do well. On the evening after the retreat... Don Bosco complained that some pupils had not used the retreat to improve the state of their souls. In these past days, he said, I saw the sins each of you have committed as clearly as if they were all written down. Some of you who confessed just wanted to list your sins without answering my questions. These questions were a grace that the Lord gave me for your sake. Some of you who ignored my questions and advice will ask if I can still read your conscience. No, I must answer you. You didn't participate then, and now it's too late for you to benefit. On April 14th, Don Bosco spoke to the students. He talked to the artisans the following evening. He described two dreams that he had before and after the retreat. It was Easter Saturday night, April 3rd, And in my dream, I was standing on the balcony, watching the young people having fun. Suddenly, a large white sheet appeared and covered the whole courtyard. Then a significant number of crows came fluttering above the sheet, circling here and there. Finally, they found the edge of the sheet. They passed underneath it and began pecking at the young men playing. They were plucking out eyes and ripping out and shredding tongues. They pecked the boys' foreheads and tried to tear out their hearts. The most astonishing part was that no one even shouted or complained. All remained numb and didn't try to defend themselves. So I asked myself, am I dreaming or am I awake? If I'm not dreaming, how on earth can these people allow themselves to be butchered without any cries of pain? After a while, I heard a general groan from the group of boys and then... I saw the wounded boys flailing, shouting, cackling, and going away from the others. Amazed, I wondered what this meant. Perhaps because it was the first Saturday after Easter, the Lord wanted to show us that he intends to cover all of us with his grace. Those crows must be demons assaulting the young people. While I was wondering about this, I heard a noise and I woke up. Already it was daylight and someone had knocked on the door of my room. But imagine my surprise on Monday when the number of people receiving communion was considerably diminished. On Tuesday, there were even fewer. Then on Wednesday, the decreased number of people receiving communion was most notable. The congregation was so reduced that I finished hearing confessions by the middle of Mass. However, I didn't want to say anything. The retreat and spiritual exercises were approaching, so I hoped they would fix everything. Then yesterday, April 13th, I had another dream, and all day long I heard confessions. My mind was occupied with the souls of the youth, so in the evening I went to bed and fell asleep after a while. Then I dreamed I was on the balcony again, observing the young people playing once more. I saw all who the crows had wounded, and I watched them. Then someone appeared with a jar of ointment in his hand. He was accompanied by another person who carried a cloth to wipe with. These two went around dressing the wounds of the young men, who were healed as soon as the bomb touched them. But several turned away and didn't want to be healed. What displeased me most was that so many turned away. I took care to write their names down because I knew them all, but while I was writing, I woke up and found myself without the paper. However, simply dreaming about their names imprinted them in my memory, and now I remember almost all of them. I might perhaps forget a few, but I think only a few. I shall directly speak to them, as I have already spoken to some, and I can try to persuade them to heal their wounds. Give what consideration to this dream what you will, but I say this. If you fully believe in it, it will do no harm to your soul. Don Bosco warned the boys to make a good resolution about how to spend their time on the Linton retreat and what fruit to harvest from it. Then he shared two dreams. Those who used their retreat time poorly were punished because they lost grace, the grace they could have received if they had made good resolutions. These boys in the dream crawled away from those who had made good plans for their retreat. If you'd like to hear St. John Bosco's dream, The Two Columns, which prophesied persecutions of the Catholic Church, just click on the video I've put on the screen. Thank you all so much for watching. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. I've mentioned many times on this channel that St. John Bosco had superhuman strength, but today I intend to prove it through accounting eyewitness testimonies. I'm going to show you that his strength wasn't merely natural, but a gift from God, like Samson in the Old Testament. The miracles and prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Subscribe for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. In St. John Bosco's first prophetic dream, when he was a child, he was told, Make yourself humble, steadfast, and strong. This was to be a blessing for both body and soul. Indeed, it is written, Better a poor man, strong and robust, than a rich man with wasted frame. More precious than gold is health and well-being, contentment of spirit, than coral. The Book of Sirach. Seemingly, therefore, The voice not only gave him advice, but also conferred a special gift on him. And I would like to add that his strength assisted him in warding off assassination attempts later on in his life, as we've already seen in past episodes that you can watch by clicking on the card above me. With a mere glance at John's physical appearance, one could see in it a God-given strength. He had a lithe build, was of average height with narrow shoulders. This strength he developed by continual exercise. He worked tirelessly at performing acrobatic stunts and completing his farm chores. He tested himself by cracking peach and apricot pits between his teeth. He could crush walnuts, hazelnuts, and almonds between the thumb and index finger of either hand. Without much effort, he could snap metal rods that were used as balcony railings into small pieces. When lining up his friends for gymnastic drills, Smilingly, he would send anyone who fell out of line, reeling to the rear by the strong grip of his arm. Some events that occurred much later in John's life require a mention at this point. At Chiari, for instance, he used his strength to dissuade anyone who tried to force him into games he didn't care for. On his way to class one day, during his last year of high school, four of his companions suddenly ambushed him by jumping on his back. John let them have their fun, and as soon as all four were upon him, he grabbed the hands of the topmost boy and squeezed down so tightly that the other three boys were helplessly pinned against him. Straightening up, John then carried the yelling boys into the playground for everyone to enjoy the spectacle. Then he carried them back into class with the utmost ease. The boys never again dared to bother him. At that age, John could easily carry 400 pounds of weight in his arms. One day during his first years as a priest in turn, he was walking on the porticos of the outdoor market and noticed a crowd in front of the entrance to a draper's shop. Egged on with curiosity, he elbowed his way through the crowd and witnessed two huge growling and snarling mastiffs engaged in a vicious fight. But before we hear what happened with these bloodthirsty dogs, I'd just like to invite you to enroll in our Saturday Mass Intentions for the promoters of St. John Bosco by clicking on the link in the description below, or you can wait till the end of the video and click on the logo that should appear on the screen. Because of the dogfight, the onlookers were afraid to enter the shop. Don Bosco pushed his way to the front of the crowd. At that moment, one of the dogs backed into the doorway and crouched, ready to spring. Shut the door, quickly, so he can't get out! I'll take care of this one, Don Bosco ordered a young sales clerk. Watch out. It'll bite, warned the boy. Don't worry, replied Don Bosco. Just do as I say. Griffin will be our stand-in for the snarling dog. Don Bosco firmly seized the dog by the rump and the nape of its neck. He then swung it around for a few minutes. Barking furiously, the dog struggled to escape. Shocked by such daring, The spectators feared that the dog would get loose and attack them. But Don Bosco, holding it firmly by the nape of the neck, lowered it to the ground and dragged it to the center of Milano Square toward the bridge. There he freed the dog and gave it a resounding wallop on its rump. With a loud yelp, limping, and panting, the dog dashed away from the crowd. Canon Joseph Zapata, who had witnessed the scene, went up to Don Bosco and said, "'Don't you consider this rather unbecoming for a priest?' "'Dear Canon,' replied Don Bosco respectfully, "'someone had to do it. "'No one else made a move, so I did.'" Another incident occurred in 1846, or maybe 1847, when Don Bosco was going to Biella to preach a retreat. During such trips, he laid artful plans to win over coachmen and stable boys into his confidence. Once this was done, he instructed them in their religion and encouraged them to approach the sacrament of penance. To gain their confidence, he would display some of his physical prowess, something that never failed to impress them. One day, he was in Sentia, a small town near Turin. While waiting for the stagecoach to be readied, he rested against the wall of the inn, very close to the horses while they were being changed. The coachman warned him several times to move away, for one of the horses would bite anybody who approached. Don Bosco replied, Don't worry, it won't hurt me. Suddenly the horse moved toward Don Bosco and cornered him against the wall. It lunged at him, but never had a chance to open its mouth. Using only one hand, Don Bosco gripped its jaws so firmly that the horse couldn't shake itself free no matter how wildly it tossed its head. It reared furiously and kicked frantically, but Don Bosco held him in a vice-like grip. People crowded around to watch and mingled fear and wonder. Meanwhile, Don Bosco quietly ordered the coachman and a stable boy to fetch a rope and tie the horse's rear legs. Once the legs were securely bound and Don Bosco had room for movement, he slowly loosened his grip. As he climbed into the coach, Everybody asked, who is this priest that has such a powerful grip? A year or so later, Don Bosco was a guest of a local high school instructor, Father Matthew Pico. Several porters arrived, delivering a piano tightly crated with metal strips. Father Pico, very anxious to examine the piano immediately, was unable to find a hammer or pliers or any tool to open the crate. Don Bosco examined the metal bands and then closed his grip around them. The metal straps gave way and were forced open. The metal strips were all broken free in this manner. Next, he wrenched open the nailed boards of the crate. Father Pico stared in speechless amazement as metal snapped and wood splintered. Once while in Paris in 1883, Don Bosco was invited to dinner by a family of the nobility. Toward the end of the meal, hard nuts were served, and the guests waited for the nutcrackers. During the conversation, Don Bosco picked up selected nuts, cracked them between his two fingers, and offered them to the dinner guests. They were delighted at being served by a man whom they held in such great esteem. Thinking that Don Bosco had been shelling the after-dinner nuts with a nutcracker, they were amazed when they noticed that he was shattering the shells with his fingers. Some remarked with admiration, it must take a special gift from Mary Help of Christians to crush nuts like that. And I think it probably was. In 1884, overworked and exhausted, Don Bosco had been confined to bed. His doctor decided to test his strength with an ergometer. Before doing so, he said, Don Bosco, grasp my wrist with all your might. Doctor, replied Don Bosco, you might be sorry. The doctor insisted, don't be afraid of hurting me. Grasp it as hard as you can. Don Bosco consented and gripped the doctor's outstretched hand so strongly that he drew tears from him. The doctor, who had not suspected such strength in his patient, bore it for a moment, but then uttered a sharp cry of pain. Don Bosco's grip had almost forced blood from the doctor's fingertips. Then he told Don Bosco to grip the instrument. Listen, doctor, warned Don Bosco, if I grip this thing, I'll break it. No matter how strong you are, replied the doctor, you won't be able to break this steel ring. Very well. Then you try your strength on it first, said Don Bosco. The doctor firmly grasped the instrument, and it registered at 48. Now let this good father who has been nursing me try it too, said Don Bosco. The priest he was referring to was none other than Father Lemoyne, the author of these biographical memoirs. Father Lemoyne complied and the needle rose to 43. Now it's your turn, the doctor said to Don Bosco. He gripped the ergometer and the needle rose to its maximum mark of 60. Don Bosco felt that it wasn't registering his full strength. In utter amazement, the doctor declared that he had never before met a patient who after a long illness displayed such remarkable vigor. The wonder of Don Bosco's strength was that he was able to demonstrate it without any seeming effort. In his usual calm and relaxed manner, there wasn't any fuss. It seemed to be the most natural thing in the world. We shall see in future episodes on this channel how his strength gradually was used up in continuous sacrifice for the glory of God and for the good of his fellow men. Thank you all so much for watching, and don't forget, if you'd like to enroll in our Saturday Mass Intentions for the promoters of St. John Bosco, just click on the link above me here. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. In past episodes, we learned of Don Bosco's vision of the future of his Salesians in South America, But how did he ever populate those countries with enough priests? He was able to tell who had a vocation through his God-given grace of discernment of spirits, his ability to read the hearts of men. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Subscribe for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. It was usual for Don Bosco to read into the human heart, as is shown by the following story told by his Salesians. Don Bosco had been absent for many days. The first evening after his arrival, he gave us the usual good-night talk. He was greeted by a long round of applause, and it took him some time to reach the stand. When he finally mounted it, a deeply moving silence fell over all. "'I've been away a long time, haven't I?' he smilingly remarked. "'But what else could I do?' You eat so much bread that Don Bosco has to run out to find money to pay for it. But during my absence, I came back twice. We looked at one another with eyes wide open in astonishment and pricked up our ears. I truly did, he went on. On one of these visits, I came into the church during High Mass and noticed that one of you was missing. Tomorrow that boy will pack his bags and go home because Don Bosco doesn't want such boys. Bear it well in mind, my sons. Even from afar, Don Bosco always sees you. Now we felt more moved than surprised. As he stepped down from the stand, we crowded around him, clamoring, Who is it? Who is it? I won't tell you, he gravely replied. The one concerned will know tomorrow. The next day, we found out that one of our schoolmates had gone home. Even from afar, Don Bosco always sees you. Another pupil, Joseph Gumba, who later became a Salesian priest and provincial in Uruguay, entered the oratory in the summer of 1872. On his very first confession to Don Bosco, the latter asked, Will you have confidence in me? Yes, father. Well then, I'll question you, and you must answer truthfully. Yes, father. You did this, didn't you? Yes, father. You didn't do that, did you? No, father. All his questions perfectly matched what the youngster had or had not done so that the confession, which the lad had begun in a state of mental confusion and with the fear of unwittingly leaving something out, ended with the certainty of having revealed everything and with a most enviable peace of mind, which henceforth was never disturbed. Realizing that Don Bosco had read his heart like an open book, Gamba not only never changed confessors during his stay at the oratory, for he was sure that he could never find a better one, but he also tried not to commit any faults, because he didn't cherish the thought of Don Bosco telling him about them. Father Luis Nye, a Salesian missionary priest, who was appointed provincial of Santiago, Chile, felt compelled to write about an experience of his own. One evening in 1872, I believe it was the last day of the student's spiritual retreat, Don Bosco was hearing confessions behind the main altar. I was one of the last penitents. When I was through with my confession, Don Bosco said these precise words to me. At this moment, your whole future is wide open to me. He then went on to tell me what he saw. I recall experiencing then and there a heavenly joy. Now I can swear under oath that everything Don Bosco told me did come true. Don Bosco told Louis, I see a bear and a lion attacking you. They symbolize the trials which you will be exposed to, moral struggles and calumnies. But I can also see your goodwill. Don't be upset. Keep going. The youth later confirmed under oath that he had indeed encountered these trials and overcome them. In regard to calumny, a companion threatened to accuse him falsely to Don Bosco and indeed carried out his threat. Hearing of this, Nai hastened to Don Bosco to defend himself. But the priest forestalled him, saying, "'Don't you trust me? Have no fear. I know you well.'" On another occasion, after Nye had finished his confession, Don Bosco asked him, "'Would you like to make a deal with me?' "'What kind?' "'Figure it out. I'll tell you about it some other time.'" The boy waited anxiously for the day of his weekly confession in order to have the riddle explained. When it finally came, he immediately asked Don Bosco, "'So what's the deal?' Go to Father Rua, Don Bosco replied. More curious than ever, the lad complied. Don Bosco sent me to you, he told Father Rua. What for? About some deal he wants to make with me. Father Rua stopped to think for a moment. Oh, yes, he replied. Come tomorrow to the conference in the church of St. Francis de Sales. The conference was for Salesians. He attended and began to understand. When he was a Salesian priest, he once asked Don Bosco, What particularly prompted you to tell me that you wanted to make a deal with me when I was a young student? While I was hearing confessions, Don Bosco replied, I often saw little tongues of fire detach themselves from the candles on the altar of Merry Help of Christians and, after moving in circles, flutter over the heads of some boys. One of those tongues of fire settled over you. For him... Those flames were obvious signs that those boys were to join the Salesian Society. This happened many times, as he himself confided to his Salesian priests in 1885. Another zealous missionary, Father Majoriano Boratello, left us an interesting account of his first meeting with Don Bosco. The lad entered the Salesian school of Varese in 1873 with no intention whatsoever of becoming a priest, still less a religious, and particularly a Salesian, because he had misgivings about Don Bosco and his work. Shortly after his arrival at the school, he wasn't too happy to hear that Don Bosco was coming for a visit. His report is as follows. I was looking forward to seeing Don Bosco, but at the same time I felt uneasy about being seen by him. When he arrived, all the pupils ran elatedly to him, vying with one another to kiss his hand while he smiled and greeted them most amiably. I, too, approached him from the rear, unseen, and kissed his hand just to be able to say afterward that I, too, had done it. He pretended not to see me by turning his head away from me, but he gripped one of my fingers and held it tightly, together with the fingers of some ten or more other boys, so that I was obliged to follow him through the long corridor. As he went along, he gradually let go of the other boys, so that by the time he reached the wide staircase, there were only two of us with him. John Bielli, a close friend and classmate of mine, now a priest, and myself. After chatting a while with Bielli, Don Bosco dismissed him. He then turned to me. Until now, he hadn't looked at me at all, seemingly on purpose. Immediately, I thought to myself, Now I'm in for it. How will I do? Don Bosco gave me a piercing look that shook my every fiber. Unable to sustain his scrutiny, I lowered my eyes in embarrassment and awe. I realized and am still convinced that he was seeing into my very soul, not only what I was then, but what I might become with God's grace and his help. Never in my life had I experienced anything of this sort. Very amiably, he asked my name, what I planned to do in the future, whether I liked the school, and so on. He ended by saying, "'Remember, I want to be your friend.'" Dismissing me, he added, "'Tomorrow I'll be hearing confessions in the sacristy. Come and see me. We shall have a nice talk, and you'll be happy.'" It's easier to imagine than to describe my feelings after this encounter. I was glad to have made his acquaintance. Then and there, I felt that I loved him, and all my misgivings instantly disappeared.'" I made my confession to him the following day, and, just as he had promised, I was deeply satisfied. He himself laid bare the state of my conscience so precisely, but ever so gently, that I was astonished and confused, wondering what was more admirable in him—his saintliness in reading my soul, or his kindness and tact in telling me what he saw. I wept with sheer joy at having found such a dear friend and father and ever after, my love for him increased with no abatement. Whenever I could, I went to confession to him and was always highly satisfied. At times, he gave me advice which had nothing to do with my confession, but after a few moments' reflection, I would realize that he was right. Only one who could read into the innermost recesses of a conscience could have spoken as he did. He also predicted several things to me which were fulfilled to the letter. If you'd like to hear a dream of St. John Bosco in which he cautions us against grumbling and disobedience, just click on the link above me here. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. In 1989, a friend of mine went to Rome and took a tour of a Catholic school run by the Sisters of St. Dorothy. There was an incorrupt body of the Foundress, St. Paula Frazzinetti, who was under an altar of the school church in a glass case. Someone asked, would you like to see her room? And they took my friend upstairs, indicated St. Paula's humble quarters and said, this is the room that she used to talk to St. John Bosco in, though he lived miles away from Rome in Turin. The guide said that St. John Bosco would supernaturally appear to St. Paula and give her advice on how to run her school for girls. In today's episode, we'll discuss the Sisters of St. Dorothy and their spiritual connection with St. John Bosco, including a miraculous cure through his intercession. The miracles and prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Subscribe for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. St. Paula Frazzinetti, who lived from 1809 to 1882, contemporary with Don Bosco, Was foundress of the congregation of the Sisters of St. Dorothy. She opened boarding schools and orphanages for the poor and needy youth in Liguria and Rome. Eventually, she established a presence in many other parts of Italy and the world, such as Malta, Portugal, Brazil, and the United Kingdom. When Don Bosco came to St. Onofrio to visit St. Paula, he told the sisters, your mother general is like a sunflower. He was referring to the fact that St. Paula's mind and heart was always turned toward God. While in Rome in the year of Our Lord, 1882, Don Bosco became the means of the Lord's comfort for Mother Paola Frazinetti. She had known him for several years and admiringly sought to imitate him as best she could in her personal daily life. Learning that she was ill, Don Bosco stopped in to see her. All the sisters were thrilled by his visit. For they hoped that through his presence and blessing their reverend mother would be restored to health. I don't think that Paula had any thought of recovering, but she took heart in knowing that the Lord God was comforting her in her advanced age through this great apostle of charity. She was moved with holy joy at seeing him and recommended herself to his prayers. His Christian love and kindliness and warm friendliness for their mother cheered the sisters though it didn't fully meet their expectations. They were hoping for a miracle, a divine favor, or at least a prophetic utterance to assure them of her recovery. But standing at her bedside, he spoke only words of Christian comfort. As soon as he left her side, the sisters besieged him with questions to wrest from his lips a single word, a mere hint to ease their fears. But with gentle kindness, Don Bosco simply replied, my daughters, your mother's heavenly crown is ready. His reply was understandably sad and joyful for the sisters. It was sad because it held no hope of longer life for their foundress, but it was also joyful because it spoke of the crown awaiting her in the kingdom of heaven. With a prayer on her lips, she breathed her last on June 11, 1882, and was canonized on March 11, 1984. Now she lies incorrupt. No, the miracle of recovery I was referring to wasn't performed for her because it was God's time to pluck this sunflower for his heavenly garden. In fact, the miracle Don Bosco performed for her order wasn't even in St. John Bosco's lifetime, nor was it in Rome either. What happened in Portugal on December 8, 1888 isn't merely a miracle, but a very great miracle as indeed Cardinal Aloysius Masella, the prefect of the Congregation of Rights, qualified a year and a half later. Sister Mary Josephine Alvez de Castro, a sister of St. Dorothy, who lived in the school of Cavala in the Diocese of Guarda, became seriously sick in March. The diagnosis indicated tuberculosis. From September on, the patient grew so weak that she was no longer able even to sit up in bed. Her extraordinary confessor, Father Nicolas Rodriguez, a Jesuit who saw her several times wrote saying that she looked just like a corpse. One day he brought her a relic of Don Bosco. On merely kissing it, the patient felt that her heart had opened up to hope, and she experienced an inner peace. She began a novena to Mary Immaculate on November 22nd, asking through the intercession of Don Bosco that she obtain her recovery. During the night, on the fifth day of the novena, she finally fell asleep, something she had not done for a long time. During her sleep, she felt someone tap her on the shoulder and call her by name. She woke up startled, not knowing what was happening. She fainted. She was unable to say later whether her passing out lasted for a long time or not, but she did recall having seen Don Bosco, who said, I would like to do what you're asking for, but I cannot do so because our lady is angry with you. Nevertheless, do not lose heart. I will help you." So saying, he disappeared. To understand the reason for this gentle reprimand, we have to think back to a confession made by the nun prior to her sickness. I felt that I was living a life of great tepidity. she writes, for I frequently committed faults, remarkable for a religious. On April 11th, I went to confession, but to my amazement, I found that my confessor acted with great roughness toward me, and this discouraged me considerably. During the night after the apparition, she was awake. She lost her strength and fainted again. Then the Immaculate Virgin herself appeared, together with Don Bosco, who was kneeling in front of Our Lady, begging her to forgive the sister adding that, after this, she would steadfastly keep her good resolutions. Then the Virgin said to the sister, I will not abandon you if you will mend your ways. It only lasted for a brief moment, but when it was over, the sister's soul was flooded with joy. She began the Novena for the Feast of the Immaculate Conception on the 29th with unparalleled fervor. On the fourth and fifth day of the Novena, she was visited again by the Holy Virgin and by Don Bosco. This time, Our Lady said, if you promise to serve me with greater fervor and to be more faithful to my divine Son, on my feast day, you will regain the health you have lost. In the meantime, her state of health continued to cause great preoccupation. For three consecutive days, the blood spitting that bothered her before became more frequent and threatening. She began to spit up much blood. Despite the aggravation of her sickness, the patient was waiting trustingly for the dawn of December 8th. The vigil brought her a violent fever. From 3 to 4 o'clock in the morning of the 8th, she felt she would spit out all her lungs. Then she quieted down and slept for a while. At last, she heard the well-known voice of Don Bosco, who woke her up and told her these comforting words. Get up! You're healed! Don't forget what you promised! The sister leapt out of bed and lay prostrate on the floor for a few moments, aware that there was nothing more the matter with her. Nevertheless, she went back to bed again to await the community's rising bell. At five o'clock, she dressed neatly and went down to the chapel and attended two masses on her knees. Then she went with her dumbfounded sisters into the dining room where she ate with a hearty appetite. Sister Mary Josephine was 29 years of age and had been in religion nearly 10 years. When the Jesuit priest was told about it, he decided to personally study what had happened and found her to be in excellent health, busy at her duties. He wrote that he saw her once again eight years later and still found her active and blooming in health. Thank you all so much for watching. And if you'd like to see a playlist with all of Don Bosco's miracles, just click on the link above me here. God bless you and our lady keep you. St. John Bosco warned the king of Italy, Victor Emmanuel II, that if he signed a certain bill, evils upon evils would fall upon his house. Nevertheless, he did sign off on the 1855 monastic suppression laws, which allowed the confiscation of church property in Italy and closed many a convent and monastery. Now, we've already heard of Don Bosco's prophecy of doom for the king's house earlier on the channel, And if you'd like to see a playlist of our three-part series, just click on the link above me here. But today, I'm going to tell you of the chilling fulfillment of this prophecy after the king entertained the idea of signing this anti-Catholic bill. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Subscribe for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. The bill proposing the stealing of ecclesiastical property had not yet been discussed in the Chamber of Deputies. However, it had already been addressed in two sittings in 1854 and 1855. The Archbishop of Genoa and the Bishops of Annecy and Morienne had gone to Rome, because the ministry had strongly urged them to find ways to convince the Holy See to give ecclesiastical property to the state. This was all a sham. The Masons desired to trample the Church's rights at all costs. The Holy Father was willing to aid Piedmont's finances, and he was imposing very reasonable conditions on this concession. The government, however, had sent a copy of the bill to Rome, which ended all negotiations. In the meantime, petitions were coming in from all quarters to Parliament for it to reject the bill. Two respectful but forceful letters from the Episcopate of the Kingdom were presented to the houses. Catholics, who could influence public affairs, were preparing for the fight. Occasionally, in the evenings, characters among the most distinguished of Turin would go to the ecclesiastical boarding school, which Don Bosco had attended, and hold conferences with none other than St. Joseph Cafasso, who Don Bosco also knew. They had gone to him to firm up their convictions, arm themselves with courage, and receive an exact argument to avoid pitfalls and deception from his brilliant mind. Don Caffasso knew how to advise them very well what to do, and to all he recommended union, obedience, respect for the Pope, and firmness in fulfilling the duties of good Christians. They were all friends of Don Bosco. Among them was Marquis Fassati, who knew what Don Bosco was doing for the cause and was undoubtedly in complete agreement with Don Caffasso. Meanwhile, in the Chamber of Deputies on January 9, 1855, a discussion was taking place on the forfeiture of ecclesiastical property, and these absolute insanities were spewed from the mouths of liberals. Civil power has a right to appropriate ecclesiastical property when it's no longer used. The church has no right to own anything. The poor have the right to the property of the church, and when a nation is poor, church property needs to be confiscated. Religious communities must recognize civil authority solely from the country to which they belong. The Earl of Margaret eloquently refuted all of that nonsense with courage, and wasn't afraid to qualify Rattazzi's proposal as sacrilegious robbery, and concluded his speech by foretelling trouble for Piedmont if the law was passed. Other deputies and Catholic journalists valiantly fought the bill as well. Such was the state of affairs when a painful event interrupted the discussion. On January 5th, 1855, Queen Mother Maria Teresa suddenly fell ill, and though she suffered a great thirst during the night, she didn't drink to be able to receive Holy Communion on Epiphany. King Victor Emmanuel wrote, My mother and wife keep telling me that they are dying of stress on my account. In alignment with Don Bosco's prophecy, the queen mother died on January 12, 1855, in the afternoon, at the age of 54. The chamber suspended its work to mourn with the king. The loss of Maria Theresa was a great misfortune for Piedmont, as she was very generous with the poor. As the coffin was yet closing, a mysterious letter came to the king, which said, without naming anyone, a person enlightened from on high warns, beware. There has already been one death. If the law is passed, other misfortunes will befall your family. And this is just the beginning. Erunt mala super mala in domo tua. Evils upon evils will fall upon your house. If you do not turn back, you will be opening a bottomless abyss. The king was dumbfounded. His peace of mind was overcome by a sense of terror Enrico Tavallini corroborates this fact when he wrote that the king was threatened with divine punishment by numerous letters from prelates. Maria Teresa's solemn funeral was held on the morning of January 16, 1855. The body was transported to Superga in frigid weather that made many soldiers ill. Four days prior to the queen mother's death, Queen Maria Adelaide had happily given birth to a son— But soon, complications endangered her life. Her sorrow from the loss of her mother further aggravated her condition and made it critical. At about 3 o'clock in the afternoon of January 16th, Holy Viaticum was brought to her from the Royal Chapel of the Holy Shroud while people flocked to church to pray for her recovery. Immense crowds gathered in all the churches for the restoration of her health the whole of Piedmont heartily associated itself with the sorrows of the royal family, verifying the ancient maxim that in Piedmont, the king's misfortunes are the people's misfortunes. On January 20th, 1855, extreme unction was administered to the queen, and about noon, she entered her final agony. In the evening, about six o'clock, she expired at only 33 years of age. The mourning of the House of Savoy did not end there. On the same evening, Holy Viaticum was given to His Royal Highness Ferdinand, Duke of Genoa. Already worn out from health problems, the only brother of King Victor Emmanuel plunged into the most agonizing illness. Three weeks later, in February, he too would die. Maria Adelaide's funeral was held on January 24th, 1855, and the body was buried in Superga. The clerics of the oratory were stunned to see Don Bosco's prophecies fulfilled in such a lightning-fast manner, and were all the more impressed since they attended both funerals. For the oratory, this was all a great misfortune, and the clerics were saying to Don Bosco, "'Your prophecies have come true. "'They were indeed great funerals, "'as the court valet announced to you.' "'It is true,' Don Bosco replied. God's judgments are indeed inscrutable, and we do not know if divine justice will be paid with merely these two deaths. Don Bosco likely knew much more than he had manifested. Countess Felicita Cravosio and Fossi sent the Salesians the following testimony that she signed. It was the year 1854, and I begged Don Bosco to accept a foster brother of my son into the oratory, who had lost both his mother and his father. He accepted him with the condition that I should present myself to the queen mother and her daughter and ask for a donation of 2,000 lire that Don Bosco needed to pay for an urgent debt. I promised and was resolved to fulfill my promise, but then difficulties arose that caused me to postpone my visit to these august ladies, who, in the meantime, had moved away from Turin, and were living in the villa of Count Kay's of Casaletti. Having gone to the country for some rest, I returned to the city before autumn and went to see Don Bosco, who immediately said to me, "'I accepted the foster son of your brother, but you didn't keep your promise. You didn't speak to the queens of my debt to the baker.' "'This is true,' I replied, but rest assured that as soon as the queens are back in turn, I won't fail to fulfill my promise.' While I was speaking, Don Bosco shook his head, indicating disbelief, and with a somewhat sad smile, he said to me, So many things can happen in between now and then that you may never speak to the queens again. The countess asked, Why are you telling me this? Because that's the way it is. You'll never see the two queens again. After a fortnight, I was staying in a noble's house, and I learned of the return of the queens to Turin and that Queen Maria Teresa was very ill and had received the sacraments. We soon got the news of her death. Eight days later, the young Queen Maria Adelaide died, and both were mourned and venerated as two holy queens. Then I remembered the words of the Servant of God and saw his prophetic spirit clearly. Meanwhile, Pius IX made a declaration on January 22, 1855, He showed how much he had done to alleviate the ills of the church in Piedmont and set forth the many decrees by which that government was harassing the one true faith. This evil decree proved how the new law of forfeiture was utterly repugnant to natural, divine, and social law and how it opened the way to the most pernicious errors of socialism and communism. Pius IX then affirmed the curse that would fall upon the advocates of that immoral law and anyone who stole ecclesiastical property. Thank you all so much for watching, and if you'd like to see the other parts of this story, just click on the link above me here. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. Before beginning this story, I can't stress enough Don Bosco's kindness and love for souls. He reminds us of our Lord Jesus Christ, and how hordes of people flocked to him to be healed spiritually and even physically. Thousands of people were cured from physical maladies through his intercession while he lived. If you don't believe me, you should have a look at the hundred episodes documenting these events on my channel. However, there's a time for mercy and there's a time for justice. And in this well-documented story, God defends the honor of the priestly vocation this fact was made known through the voice of St. John Bosco, who reminds me, in this instance, of a glorious prophet of the Old Testament, like the story of Elisha and the bears. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Subscribe for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Don Bosco's zeal in fostering priestly vocations used up nearly all his energies. His thoughts, words, and actions incessantly aimed at this goal. It will be difficult for anyone to envisage the extent of his veneration for the priesthood if a striking incident that occurred during one of the years from 1855 to 1858 had not brought it fully to light proving beyond doubt, too, that Don Bosco could see the future of many who came to seek his blessing. One day, a countess, who shall remain nameless, visited Don Bosco with her four little sons. She begged him to bless them, and then she added, please, father, tell me what their future will be. That's a very unusual request, Don Bosco replied. Only God knows the future. Yes, yes, of course, the countess continued. Still, give me an inkling at least by making a wish. Playfully then, Don Bosco pointed to each boy in succession saying, you will be a great general, you a great statesman, and you, Henry, a famous doctor. Overjoyed by these happy predictions, the mother heartened her children to look forward to their bright futures, commenting that they would not be the first members of her family to rise to eminent social positions. It was now the fourth boy's turn to hear his future. The mother anxiously waited as Don Bosco placed his right hand on the little boy's head and gazed affectionately upon him. And this, my last one? The countess inquired. I wonder if this one's destiny will please you, said Don Bosco. Oh, please tell me, father. After all, this is all just in fun. Well, this little one will be an excellent priest. The lady blanched. She was a practicing Catholic, yet overpowered by worldly consideration. She pressed her child protectively to her heart, as if to protect him from some terrible misfortune, and exclaimed, my son, a priest? I'd rather have God take his life. Grieved and shocked, Don Bosco rose to bring the visit to an end. So beside herself as to be totally unaware of her insult to the priesthood, And to Don Bosco, the Countess muttered, perplexed, What's wrong, father? My lady, Don Bosco dryly replied, I'll have nothing to do with a person who so demeans the most noble and exalted state on earth, and I am certain God will hear your insolent prayer. Dismayed by such a firm threat, the Countess mumbled an apology, but the visit was quickly ended. The next day, realizing the full impact of her blunder, she returned to the oratory. Please forgive my thoughtlessness, she apologized. Try to understand that should any son become a priest, my family and I will suffer, but I, I will not oppose God's will. I bow to it. Countess Don Bosco replied, the trouble is that you despise the greatest gift God could ever grant you and your family. Is it a disgrace to be chosen to a service? Uh, I'm terribly sorry, Father. Uh, Please pray for me. I will. But God took you at your word the moment you spoke. The poor woman left more distressed than ever. A few months later, a relative of hers called on Don Bosco to beg him to visit and bless the Countess's child, who had taken ill. Don Bosco excused himself. The following day, several relatives and friends, and then the mother herself came to beseech him because the boy was sinking fast and doctors were still unable to diagnose his illness. Don Bosco finally yielded. The young boy seized Don Bosco's hand and kissed it. Then sadly and silently, he kept looking from Don Bosco to his mother and back again. It was indeed a heartrending scene. After a heavy silence, the boy gathered his strength and, stretching his wasted hand to his mother, said, Mama, do you remember there in Don Bosco's room? It was your wish, Mama. Now the Lord is taking me away. With a gasp, the unhappy mother broke into uncontrolled sobs, exclaiming, My child, it was only because I love you so much. Please don't leave me. I I need you. Beg Don Bosco to cure you? Don Bosco was too moved to speak. Finally offering some words of comfort to his mother, he blessed the sick boy and left. God's decree, however, was irrevocable. The Lord's precious gift forfeited by the noble lady's son fell instead to a poor child of the oratory. On December 18, 1858, The cleric Joseph Rocchetti was ordained a priest to Don Bosco's great joy. He was the second oratory boy to be called to God's service, the first being Father Felix Reviglio. The newly ordained Joseph Rocchetti, like all his classmates, had often experienced Don Bosco's boundless generosity. He was a destitute orphan. One day, while still a cleric, or seminarian as we would call them now, He asked Don Bosco for a much needed cassock. That very morning, Don Bosco himself had received one, as he too needed a cassock. Smilingly, he said to Rocchetti, look, here's a brand new cassock just for you. Try it on. Jubilantly, the cleric took it. On his way to the dormitory, he met John Baptist Fossi, a fellow student, and told him of Don Bosco's generous gift which is how we know of this fact today. Father Rocchetti was all for Don Bosco, and though frail in health, wanted to remain with him for life. He had a striking resemblance to St. Alphonsus Liguori. He was deeply pious, zealous in preaching, and exemplary in all he did. He said his first mass on December 19, 1858, and this joyful celebration helped the boys get ready for the Christmas midnight mass, Which they attended more fervently and devoutly than usual, also because they had been deeply impressed by some of Don Bosco's recent words. He had told them that he could not expect to live beyond 50, and at this time Don Bosco was 43, but that their prayers could obtain an extension for him. A short time later, on the last day of that year, Don Bosco made a stunning prophecy, which we will learn about on this upcoming Friday. So please subscribe and come back then. In the meantime, here's a playlist with the miracles that St. John Bosco performed, including raising an oratory boy from the dead, if you need to hear stories that emphasize God's loving kindness. Thank you all so much for watching. God bless you and Our Lady keep you. Michael Magione wrote a short letter to Don Bosco while the priest was away from the oratory in Rome. In this letter, he explained how the Blessed Virgin had made him hear her voice, calling him to be good. He explained that she wanted to teach him how to fear God, love him, and serve him. Don Bosco believed his spiritual son, and if you'd like to hear about the edifying death of a saintly young man, you should watch this two-part series on how Don Bosco predicted the death of Michael Magione, The miracles and prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Subscribe for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. On the last day of the year, 1858, Don Bosco gave the following sermon. Centuries upon centuries will pass before the end of the world. Peoples and nations will succeed one another but the year 1858 will never return. Time and mankind forever sink into eternity. This is the first thought I want to leave you tonight. The second concerns the year about to begin. As usual, I wish you a long life, but really I have something better in mind. On such occasions as this, the saints too used to exchange best wishes, but theirs were quite different from the world's. They would say, The grace of God be with you always this year, or may you always do God's will. Tonight I, too, wish to leave you some spiritual keepsakes. To the clerics, I say, give good example, as befits those who are the light of Christ. To the students, receive Holy Communion as often as possible. To all in general, make good confessions. Tell all your sins, but be truly sorry and determine to sin no more. Otherwise, your confession will be useless, and worse yet, harmful. Rather than blessings, it would draw curses. And now, do not forget to thank God for his many blessings during this past year." After these words, Don Bosco kept silent for a moment. Then, gazing affectionately on the crowd of boys, he went on, let each of you earnestly endeavor to spend the new year in God's grace, because for one of you, this may be the last year of his life. More precisely, one of you boys will go into eternity before the end of the carnival season, or in other words, before Fat Tuesday. As he spoke, Don Bosco rested his hand on Michael Maggioni's head, since he happened to be nearest to him. Turning his eyes sparkling with angelic purity to Don Bosco, Michael asked, "'Is it I, Father?' Don Bosco made no answer. "'Then it's so,' Majone went on. "'I'm the one who has to pack up and go. I'll get ready.' The boys chuckled, but they didn't forget these words. Neither did Majone, yet he didn't lose his usual cheerfulness and carefree ways as he most diligently went about his tasks." That night, one of the boys, Constantius Berardi, 16, was standing by Don Bosco and heard Magione's question. Somehow he felt that he was the one fated to die and began to say so. Quite seriously, he went to confession and then wrote to his parents. After asking their pardon for his conduct at home, he bade them farewell because he said he was soon to die. Some boys told Don Bosco of Berardi's obsession, but he showed no surprise. He simply murmured, hmm, and said no more. Therefore, the suspicion arose that Berardi was indeed the one destined to die. On his part, he kept saying, I'm the one. About a week later, Father John Garino relates, one morning, some of us were crowding around Don Bosco as usual in the dining room while he was sipping coffee. We were laughing, and joking, and eagerly waiting for Don Bosco to speak. I don't know what prompted it, but several boys began asking him how long they would live. I asked him too. Don Bosco took my hand and laughingly mentioned a certain number of years. He did the same for all present, except my classmate, Michael Magione. Michael didn't know what to make of this exception. The other boys, too, keen observers of Don Bosco's every word and action, noticed that he had ignored Majone's outstretched hand, and they too formed their own conjectures. But before we continue with this story, I'd just like to say that if you'd like to enroll in our Saturday Mass Intentions for the promoters of St. John Bosco, just click on the link in the description below. Or you can wait till the end of the video and click on the logo that should appear on the screen. It's a beautiful Mass said in the traditional Byzantine rite for all of your intentions. Now, you don't have to become a monthly donor to have a Mass prayed for you, but if you do, you could receive an incredible book written by St. John Bosco like this one, Roadmap to Heaven. So please help me keep these videos free from filthy YouTube ads and spread the message of St. John Bosco far and wide. The Blessed Sacrament Sodality, to which Majone belonged, held its regular weekly meeting. After the opening prayer, reading and a short talk with timely suggestions, one of the members went around with a small box containing folded slips of paper on which was written a maxim to be practiced during the week. Everyone drew a slip. On opening his, Majoni surprisingly read, at the judgment seat, I will be alone with God. Showing it to his companions, he remarked, hey, look at this, our Lord's warning me to get ready. Then, as soon as the meeting was over, he excitedly ran to Don Bosco to show him the slip and tell him that our Lord was summoning him. Don Bosco told him not to worry and suggested that he be ready, not because of that slip of paper, but because of our Lord's insistent warnings in the gospel. "'Yes, but how much time have I left?' "'As long as God wants, Michael.' "'But will I live till the end of this year?' he begged, almost in tears." "'Don't worry, Michael. We're in God's hands, and he's a loving Father. He knows how long it's good for us to live. Besides, we need not know the time of our death in order to go to heaven. All we need do is lead a good life.' "'Then I'm to die very soon?' he sadly replied. "'That's why you won't tell me?' "'I don't think it will be so soon,' Don Bosco replied. "'But even if it were, would you be afraid to join the Blessed Virgin in heaven?' "'Oh, no!' exclaimed Magione. He pulled himself together, and once more his cheerful self went out to play. This was the only time Don Bosco, in view of this lad's spiritual maturity, gave any youngster a hint of his near death, but the terror it caused the boy, though only momentary, was such that Don Bosco resolved never again to give the slightest hint to any boy God considered ripe for eternity.'" Don Bosco's words to Magione soon became common knowledge, and Berardi began saying, it's not my turn to die. On Wednesday afternoon, three days later, Don Bosco saw Magione on the balcony, watching the other boys at play instead of joining them, a clear sign that something was wrong. In the evening, Don Bosco asked him what was the matter, and Michael told him that it was his old trouble, worms. The doctor found no serious symptom, and prescribed the usual remedies. On Friday, Michael got worse and stayed in bed. When Don Bosco visited him at two in the afternoon, he noticed that the boy's condition had worsened. A wheezing cough aggravated his difficulty in breathing and his spittle was tinged with blood. Don Bosco immediately sent for the doctor. At that moment, Michael's mother arrived. Michael, she said, Don't you think you should make your confession while we're waiting for the doctor? Yes, mom, the boy replied. I went to confession and communion yesterday morning, but now I'm getting worse. I'd better make my confession again. He prepared himself for a few moments, then motioned to Don Bosco that he was ready. When he was through, he said serenely and almost laughingly to both Don Bosco and his own mother, I wonder if this confession is like the one I make for the exercise for a happy death, or for real. Would you rather get better or go to heaven? Don Bosco asked him. The Lord knows what's best. I'd rather do what he wants. Well, suppose he left the choice up to you. Oh, who would be foolish enough not to take heaven? Would you really like to go to heaven? Sure, with all my heart. I've always prayed so hard for it. When do you want to go? Right now, if it's God's will. All right, Michael, said Don Bosco. Let's pray together that God's holy will be ever done in life and death. At this moment, the doctor arrived. After examining the patient, he whispered, it's bad, father. It's an internal hemorrhage. I doubt that we can stop it. The end of this true story doesn't quite play out the way you'd think. So please come back Monday for the final plot twist. In the meantime, if you'd like to enroll in our Saturday Mass intentions for the promoters of St. John Bosco, just click on the link above me here. Thank you all so much for watching. God bless you and Our Lady keep you. Devout Catholics pray at least 50 times a day for a good death in the Rosary let's hear how St. John Bosco prepared Michael Magione for death. This is part two of our story. If you'd like to hear part one, click on the link at the top of the screen. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Subscribe for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Once the doctor explained that Michael Magione seemed to be suffering from an internal hemorrhage, all the standard remedies were tried, but all were in vain. At nine o'clock that evening, Magione eagerly asked for holy viaticum, which was brought to him. Before receiving it, he told Don Bosco, recommend me to the prayers of my companions. Having spent a quarter of an hour in Thanksgiving, he seemed surprised by the sudden exhaustion of his strength. But a few minutes later, with an attitude of cheerfulness, he made a gesture to get the attention of those present. Almost joking, he said, when I drew my weekly maxim on Sunday from the box, there was a mistake. The slip was written, at the judgment, I will be alone with God. But that's not true. I won't be alone. The Blessed Virgin will be there also to assist me. Now I'm ready to go. I have nothing more to fear. The Blessed Virgin herself wants to accompany me to the judgment. It was 10 o'clock and the illness appeared more and more dire causing a fear of losing him that very night. Therefore, Don Bosco arranged for a number of priests and nurses to take shifts, watching him throughout the night. However, Don Bosco perceived no immediate danger for the boy and said to the sick young man, Majone, see that you rest a little. I will return to my room for a few moments. No, replied the young man quickly. Don't leave me. I'm only going to recite part of the breviary and then I'll be back beside you, Don Bosco reassured him. Come back as soon as possible, then, the boy replied. Don Bosco had just reached his room when he heard himself being called back because the sick boy was approaching his last agony. The priest, Agostino Zatini, administered the holy oil to him at that very instant, and the dying boy added a holy exclamation upon each anointing. He was then given the papal blessing with the plenary indulgence. Then he seemed to want to sleep briefly, but soon awoke. His pulse was very weak, and the hemorrhage must have caused him acute pain in all his bodily faculties. Yet his serene air, joy, happiness, and use of reason all suggested that he was in good health. From time to time he uttered pious prayers. At three quarters past 10 o'clock, he called Don Bosco by name and said, "'This is it, help me.' "'Rest assured,' Don Bosco said, "'I won't abandon you until you're with the Lord in heaven. "'But since you tell me you're about to depart "'from this world, will you at least bid farewell "'to your mother?' "'His mother, who had been caring for him, "'had gone to rest in a nearby room. "'No,' Majoni answered him. "'I don't want to cause her so much pain, my poor mother. She loves me so much. Don't you at least want to leave a message for her? Don Bosco asked. Yes, tell my mother to forgive me all the sorrows that I have given her in my life. I regret them. Tell her that I love her. Tell her to take courage and to persevere in good. Tell her that I willingly die and tell her that I leave the world with Jesus and Mary and go to await her in heaven. These words deeply moved all the onlookers. Nevertheless, Don Bosco became animated. He asked him questions occasionally to occupy the young man's final moments with good thoughts. What do you wish to say to your companions? He asked. The young man replied, they should always try to make good confessions. Don Bosco then asked, at this moment, what brings you greater consolation than anything you have done in your life? The thing that most consoles me at this time is what little I have done to honor Our Lady, Majoni replied. Yes, this is the greatest consolation. Oh, Mary, Mary, how happy your devotees always are at the point of death. But I have one thing that bothers me. What shall I say when my soul is separated from my body and I'm about to enter heaven? To whom shall I address myself? Don Bosco reassured him, If Mary wants to accompany you to judgment, leave everything to her. But before I let you depart for heaven, I want to ask you to perform a mission for me. Tell me what it is, Majoni agreed. I will do what I can to obey you. When you're in heaven and have seen the Virgin Mary, give her a humble and respectful greeting from me and everyone in this house. Pray that she may give us her holy blessing and receive us all under her powerful protection. Ask her to help us, so that none of those in this house, or whom divine providence will send to this house, may be lost. I will do your errand in a few moments. I will see to it exactly as you desire. Tell my companions that I await them all in paradise. Then he clasped the crucifix in his hands, kissed it three times, and uttered these last words. Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, I place my soul in thy hands. Finally, opening his lips as if he wanted to smile, he calmly died. That fortunate soul left the world to fly, we piously hope, into the bosom of God at 11 p.m. on Friday, January 21st, 1859, at the age of just 14. The next day dawned, and upon hearing the news that Magione had died, all the young men cried. At the same time, they repeated, At this moment, Magione is already with Dominic Savio in heaven. Many rosaries were recited on his behalf. The Office of the Dead was recited, and many confessions and communions were made. Everyone searched for some object that had belonged to Magione, such as his notebooks, to preserve them as relics. Don Bosco himself thought that he was a saint. On January 1st, 1889, in the evening, Don Bosco announced that Magione was not the one he had intended to name as being close to eternal life. He said they should all continue to be prepared so that the boy who would die wouldn't be surprised by an unprepared death. And he added, this second death will occur before a month passes. Will it be me? Will it be one of you? Let us all be prepared. With confidence that surprised everyone, Berardi returned to his first assumption, saying, so it's my turn to stand prepared. Approaching Don Bosco, he asked, Is it I who must die?" Don Bosco gave him no answer. He was healthy, participated in recreation, and fulfilled his duties like the rest. Health had never flourished so much in the young men of the house as it did in those days. By the end of January, not seeing any sick people, more than one of the boys began saying, this time Don Bosco got it wrong, and no one will die within the month. However, on February 7th, after lunch, Berardi attended the recreation period, and went to school with the others. Young Garino, who also anxiously waited to see whether Don Bosco's word would come true, described what happened then. Next to me in the school, in the second floor classroom, I had an older companion named Berardi, and we had been assigned an essay to write. About halfway through school, Berardi turned to me and said, "'Look what I have here.' And with his finger, he showed me his upper lip, where an abscess was beginning to appear. Look, he continued to ask me, is it anything serious? Don Bosco said that someone must die this month. No one has died yet since we lost Majone. What if I am the designated one? And he almost wept. Meanwhile, he irritated the abscess by rubbing it too much and made it bleed. Don Bosco immediately sent for the doctor when he heard of this. The doctor diagnosed the abscess as anthrax that had developed in the boy's mouth. He had Berardi immediately transported to St. Morris Hospital. Despite all their care, a heavily disfigured Berardi died on February 9th, precisely a month after Magione's death, and therefore just before Fat Tuesday, according to Don Bosco's announcement on the last day of 1858. Thank you all so much for watching, and if you'd like to hear about how God defended the honor of the priesthood through St. John Bosco, just click on the link above me here. God bless you and Our Lady keep you.